Uh, We're in week two. We're going to finish out chapter one of Ecclesiastes in our series called Jesus is Hope. Now, just a reminder, this book written a thousand years before Jesus came to earth, so about 3,000 years ago from today, uh, it is not a portrait of Jesus. Some books in the Bible, uh, like Romans and Galatians and and Hebrews, are beautiful portraits of Jesus. They show you all of the beauty of who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. Uh, This is more like a silhouette. And that uh, we get a picture, a clear picture of life in the darkness, life on earth, broken humanity, right? So Genesis chapter 3, when we see the fall of man and we see what that has done to all of us and, and the earth that we walk on, it is, um, it is the book of Ecclesiastes. And so it is depressing. <laughs> it is in and of itself pretty hopeless. Uh, but the beauty is that it's all under the sun. And the end goal is that we have to look above the sun. That if we want meaning, purpose, hope, we're not going to find it in the things around us. We're not going to find it in the things that humans strive for. Apart from God, we don't have hope. But with God, we have great hope. So that's why Jesus is hope. And that's how he's the hero of Ecclesiastes. Now let me start tonight with just a little bit of an analogy as we dig into the theme. Uh, Have you ever seen Greyhound Dogs Race? Right? There's like a little museum over in Abilene where it's the Greyhound Museum. I don't know about you, but when I see it, I'm amazed because these are long, skinny dogs, and they fly around a track, and, man, they move quick. But if you ever watch a race, you'll notice there's a little mechanical, like just a, a mechanism uh, that a split second before the gates are open and the dogs run around this track, it goes ahead of them. And it's carrying on this big stick like a fake rabbit, and, and if you see, the dogs are running fast, not just for fun. They're not just competing with each other. They're chasing this rabbit. And if you don't have a rabbit, everything changes, right? And, and so I watched a video actually not too long ago, a short clip of a race where there was a mechanical failure and the rabbit didn't go. And the dogs were let out of the gates and, and they start running. And it's not super fast. It's more like a gallop. And the announcer was saying, oh, it doesn't look like we have a rabbit. What's going on here? And then eventually they slow down to a stop. They turn around on the track and they just start running back to the gates. And that was it. Like that was the race. You see, even in dog racing, we see a microcosm of life. (laughs) That there's a rabbit for all humanity and it's called purpose. It's called meaning. You and I are chasing it. We want to know, what are we here for? We want to, are we doing things on earth that are valuable? Are we doing what's most important? We want to know what's life all about. And the truth is, if you're like me, most of us are so busy, even tonight coming in here. Maybe you came from work. Maybe uh, you came from something else that, that was hectic and chaotic, and you're just trying to breathe a little bit. And you find yourself thinking, gosh, that's a big question. What's the meaning of life? What am I here for? And you're so busy with uh, expectations that people have for you and that you have for yourself and responsibilities. The older you get, it seems we're more responsible uh, for not only ourselves, but other people in our lives. And then we've got uh, just a smidgen of hopes and dreams and careers and things that we want to accomplish in life that we rarely have any time to sit back and to say, is all the chasing worth it? Is all the juggling worth it? And we juggle, 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 juggle much less ask, (laughs) what's the meaning of life, right? But we're all, whether we know it or not, we're all chasing after that. What's the meaning of life? 
And so tonight, Solomon, he's going to show us his chase for meaning. Now, I, I told you last week that I think there's three um, important questions that every person ultimately will walk through life asking themselves at various points. Uh, one regarding your origin, another regarding your meaning, and another regarding your destiny. People want to know, where did I come from? People want to know, what am I here for? And people want to know, where am I going? And there's a diverse range of answers based on your worldview. And this is important because how you answer one of those helps you to answer all of those. And how you answer any of those shapes the way that you view everything in life. So a few of those diverse understandings. I got up here on the screen. The first one, the atheist who says, well, there is no God. Their worldview says there's no intelligent design. So I don't believe that I came from anyone. Therefore, I don't think I'm going anywhere. And my purpose in life is nothing. So I came from no one. I'm going nowhere. And I'm here for nothing. That sounds pretty depressing, right? So Ecclesiastes is kind of depressing. But this worldview would be really depressing. The second one would be the agnostic. Now, this is the one who, who says, I, I don't think there's a God, but I can't really prove it. I don't really know. So they say, I don't know where I came from. I don't know where I'm going. Therefore, I don't know why I'm here. That's sad. What's even more sad is a lot of Christians actually live like that. That's a whole other sermon, right? Third one, you take Eastern religion. Now, you just take, say, uh, Hindus or Buddhists, and they would say, well, you come from, we come from our past life, and we're going to try to exit into our future life. And so our purpose on earth is essentially to make sure that we, first of all, pay our, our karmic, uh, cosmic debt via suffering for the mistakes we've made in the past life and hope that we don't add to it by doing evil in the current life so that we can ultimately exit into our future life of grand nothingness. That's what they would say. But the Christian says, well, I think I can answer these three questions this way. That I came from God, that I'm going to God, and therefore to understand my meaning and purpose in life has to be in relationship with God. Genesis tells us where we came from. We came from God. Revelation tells us where we're going to. We're going to God. And Ecclesiastes tells us why we're here. That's to be with God. Ultimately, that's what he says at the end of Ecclesiastes. To fear God, to obey God. To have a relationship with God. To find joy in God. So the big idea tonight, the meaning, the theme, is the chase for meaning. And in verses 12 through 18, Solomon is going to, he's going to give us a summary of his chase with all his wisdom, with all his wealth, with everything and his chase for meaning and finding it under the sun. And ultimately it's going to encourage you and I to realize we're going to have to look above the sun. We're going to have to look above the sun. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12, we'll hit the first half of it here in one big chunk. Starting in verse 12, he says, Now I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. And I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. You read that and you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. If he's already saying that in chapter 1, this isn't going to lead to anything good. Verse 14, I observed everything going on under the sun. Remember that phrase, that word in Hebrew that we translate under the sun. It's used roughly 29 times in this book. It's a major theme. Vanity or uh, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. You see that 
but we also see under the sun as a, as a common theme. And really, it is all meaningless. So there's, there's your other powerful theme. Like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right, and what is missing cannot be recovered. All right, let's learn about the chase a little bit. The first thing we see in the chase for meaning are the components of the chase. So here's the pieces. Essentially, Solomon is saying four different things in, in these five verses. He's saying that I chased, he's saying I experimented, he's saying I discovered, and I realized. So those four things are, are the components of his chase. The first part, in verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. So this is the, the chaser. This is him saying, I chased. Now, Solomon, uh, he has some uh, attributes and some things going in his favor that are different than you and I. Like, number one, he's the wisest man to ever walk earth outside of Jesus. So I don't know if any of us could raise our hand to, to top in that one. So, so we all think, hey, we're smart. We can figure things out. Solomon's like, well, I'm kind of the wisest. I'm the wisest one out there. Um, he also is someone with unlimited resources. So he is king of Israel, and he has uh, over 30,000 servants, it's believed. 30,000 servants. So he, he's got free time to be able to do what he wants to do. And so he devotes himself. This is more than likely written towards the end of his life as he looks back and says, this was one big chase, one big experiment. And he's saying, here's the findings of it. Here's the findings. So that's the chaser. He says, though, but I, I experimented too. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. So this is the great big experiment. Ecclesiastes is one big experiment, and these are the results. Now, here's the interesting part of this experiment, is that Solomon is both the scientist and who is doing the experiment. He's, he's the one um, orchestrating it, but he's also the test subject. So that's a unique part of this experiment. He's the one who's putting on the experiment, but he's the one who the experiment is on. And the world is the laboratory, and ultimately all the things of the world, stuff, people, places, everything that you can think of are the variables. And this is his experiment. And he says, I discovered, so this is the thesis, I discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence. Your translation might say that, that God has placed a heavy burden on us, on mankind. It's like, this is hard. To realize what in the world we're here for is incredibly difficult. If anyone ever has an easy answer for you, it's probably too good to be true. This is his thesis. And he says that, that I saw everything going on under the sun, and really... It's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. I mentioned last week that we all, most of us, have at one point in our life, maybe even today, collect things, right? Like Silas, he, he collects bugs and he collects rocks and all kinds of things. Maybe uh, you know someone who has collected uh, baseball cards or Barbie dolls or um, bottle caps or if you live in 1974, stamps, I don't know. Like maybe you collect something, right? We all, we all collect things different times in our lives and if you had a friend who said, you know what, I'm going to be gone this weekend because we're going on a trip, 
and I'm going to spend some money, but it's going to be fun. What I'm doing is I'm going down south, like, like into Mexico, and I'm going to get uh, here the first south wind coming up, and I'm going to grab it. I got this little trap. I'm going to get it out of the trap. I'm going to put it in my pocket, and then I'm going to maybe take it home and put it in my cage. And after that, next weekend, I'm going out to the sea, and I'm going to go like 10 miles off the coast, and then I'm going to go and catch one of the trade winds. It's going to be amazing. It takes boats everywhere, and I'm going to get some bring that back. I'm going to put it in my collection of wind. And then when the family comes over, when friends come over, I'm going to show them my wind collection and it's going to be amazing. How many of you would say, you are delusional? You're delusional. And Solomon's saying, if you're trying to find meaning and purpose apart from God on this earth, you're delusional. It's meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. It's like having a wind collection. But then he also says, I realized, in verse 15, so he chased, he had an experiment, he discovered, and then he realized what is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. Some of your translations might say, what is crooked cannot be made straight. This is depressing. As a pastor, sometimes I get to be a part of some of the most tragic times in someone's life. And on one hand, it's an honor. On another hand, it's just plain sad. There's tragedy all over the place. There's injustices that cannot be made right many times on earth. You can have someone go to jail. You can have someone pay a price. You can hold them emotionally hostage in and of your own heart and be bitter and resentful towards them. Like nothing in many cases ultimately makes wrongs right. You ever faced some injustice and thought, you know what, even if they faced the full penalty, even if they went to the death chair and they died, they died, they wouldn't change what they did. Solomon's saying, there's things that are crooked. Genesis 3, this world is broken because of sin. They can't be made straight. You can't make it that way, I can't make it that way. He's saying, there's some things missing, it cannot be recovered. In the garden, when God, with Adam and Eve, he walked in them, walked with them in the garden, this world was whole. It was complete. It was the way that God made it. But when sin separated us from God, we know something's missing from this world. God is missing from this world. The world and their philosophy and their understanding and their ways, their behavior, their actions, they don't want God. And so if you say, you know what, we got everything we need on earth. If we just get a new program and we get more money from the government, if we get all the people in the world to come together and we sing on stage uh, this great song about peace and harmony and everything's going to be wonderful and we can fix this world. And, and Solomon's saying, nope. You can have as many causes as you want. You try this apart from God. Just going to be in a circle saying life is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. You ever, you ever had um, a puzzle that you tried to put together? Not like a 25-piece puzzle, but like hundreds of pieces, and you, maybe your whole family was a part of it, and you got the edges all done. You're like, okay, boom, those were the easy parts. And then you had one guy or gal there sitting there putting together one uh, part of it, and another one was putting around another, and you were like, okay, we got colors matched, and, and you get this thing almost all the way done, and you're getting excited. You're like, oh, here we go. Finally, I've been looking at the box, looking at the puzzle, box, puzzle, box, puzzle, and then you realize, Oh, we're coming to the end. <laughs> There's more open spots and there are pieces. You start opening, we're looking at that box and where, hey, did, did you step on, are you sitting on something? Hey, sit, stand up, please. You're sitting on one of our pieces. And you realize there's missing pieces. 
What does that do to you? Ticks you off, doesn't it? You're just like, you know what? Throw it all away. What does it even matter? Solomon's saying that's finding purpose and meaning. That there's, there's missing pieces. Saying this earth is broken. This earth is broken. Meaningless is the search for meaning when you're doing it apart from God and broken is the earth you're trying to search it out on. It'd be like if you, if you saw a tour bus with a tour guide who were taking a whole bunch of fans from HGTV who had watched every remodeling and, and flip it kind of house show that they had ever put on and they were going to travel through the city and look at possible flips and you saw them pull up to this house and it looked rough. And they're saying, ooh, look at the character. And ooh, that's so much charm in there and we could do something with that. And they're just talking, talking, talking. And the tour guide is smiling to himself because he's thinking... <laughs> there's a sign on the door from the city that says condemned. The city knows something that these people don't know. And if they knew, maybe they wouldn't try so hard to try to remodel this thing because it would be an endless cycle of dumping your money, time, energy into something that should be condemned. And Solomon's saying, that's like trying to redeem this world apart from God. It's a total loss. No matter how many wars we fight, in order to find peace, no, no matter how much money we spend, no matter how many medications and cures we come up with, no matter how many criminals we put behind bars, the world is a total loss. Are you depressed yet? You see, Ecclesiastes is so important because its beauty comes from its hopelessness. If it was painting the picture of Not only this earth, but the kingdom of God, this would be incredibly sad. But since it's just painting the picture of this earth, and we know there's another kingdom, it gives us hope. It's not the presence of Jesus in this book that gives us hope. It's the absence of Jesus in this book that gives us hope. Amen? Let me ask you, just to get to your heart a little bit. You see, in those few verses, Solomon said he was, he was chasing, he was experimenting, he was discovering, he was realizing. Let me ask you, what are you chasing? What are you chasing? When you wake up in the morning, what do you hope happens? What are you excited about? When you go to bed at night, what are you thinking about, about that day? What's meaningful? When everything else is stripped away, what are you thinking? Hey, this is valuable to me. What are you chasing? What are you experimenting on? Some of us, we have one thing after another. We, we know that we've got new relationships. Hey, maybe this will cure my desire for satisfaction. We, we got a new job. We moved to a new city. We, we uh, say, you know what? Maybe I need to get a boat. Maybe that would help. Maybe, maybe I need to move to a bigger house. No, maybe I need to downsize. No, maybe I need to change a little bit here. No, maybe I need to focus more on retirement. No, maybe I need to, and, and we're experimenting on all these things. And everyone around us just looks like it's us and they look at our lives and they think, oh, you're just progressing through the natural stages of life. And God's saying, you're experimenting. You're using people and things to experiment trying to give you satisfaction. Is that you? That's not fair to them. It's not fair to you, if that's true. What are you discovering? Hopefully you're discovering that you can't find full satisfaction in those things. And if not, what are you realizing? Hopefully you're realizing that you can't find full satisfaction in those things. Verse 16. He says, 
I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. Next thing we see in the chase is the deception of the chase. Now, when Solomon went to college, he did not minor in humility, right? He's got some pride going on here. There's obviously, because of his wisdom, something really special about him. That's part of the deception. We'll talk about it. But real quick, history quiz. How many kings were there in the united monarchy? So before Israel divided in the Old Testament and never came back together, how many kings did they have? Anyone know? I'll give you some hints. One, three, or five? Three. Okay, so there's three kings, and he's the third of those kings, and he's saying there was two before me. Now, who were those two? Anyone know? Saul and David. Saul, pretty easy to be more wise than him. He had some insecurities. He was kind of a maniac, let's be honest. David, David was a pretty smart dude. David was Solomon's dad, and Solomon's saying, I've got more knowledge, I'm wiser than all of the kings before me. Gosh, it's not very nice to say about your dad. But he thinks that he's got something special about him. That, that's the great deception. The deception of the chase is that you, if you watch the news, you know it, that this world is broken, right? You say, oh, the world's broken, the earth's broken, the philosophy of the world, the understanding of the world, it's all broken. You get it. The Bible says there's, there's a whole different wisdom, a wisdom of, uh, of God and compared to this wisdom of the world. I recognize the world's broken. But the deception is, you don't think that you are. You don't think that you are. You you think that that you and I are smarter. That we're like Solomon. That somehow, well, I'm smarter than everyone that's come before me. That this generation thinks that it's better than the generation before it. Thinks that it's better than the generation before it. That that we saw their mistakes and that we can have different uh, things that we do. And it's going to fix what they screwed up and what they couldn't. And that we're going to progress and on and on and on. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Now, this might offend some, and so let me ease my way into it just a little bit. Um, because more than likely, every single one of us, I'm going to give us three lies that, that in our culture in America, we are taught, we generally believe, and that most of us promote on a regular basis. And it's going to be depressing, and I want to, I want to relate to Solomon in this verse, and it's going to be, it's going to be uncomfortable for us to do that. But here's, here's, um, Maybe this will help. When I was growing up in little old Randolph, Kansas, 150 people, you know, we did all kinds of stupid things. In high school, and that was the only world I knew in this little town, was the people that were around me. I I didn't grow up in any other city. We did all kinds of dumb things. We did things like um, drinking, underage drinking, commonly accepted. A lot of kids would drink and drive. And it wasn't only was it like not a taboo thing. Like they, they thought it was cool. They called it country cruising. They go out on a Friday night, they'd get a 24-pack, they'd just cruise the country roads and drink and drive, and they thought it was cool. When things went bad, first idea in conflict resolution for us was to fight. And we liked it. And it was good. And in our little town, people gossiped. In school, they gossiped. The adults gossiped. The teachers gossiped about each other. And when you're in a little town like that, everyone knows you, right? And, and even more than that, uh, the culture of the area, well, there was a lot of racism. There's racism. People just 
had different views. You say, why are you telling me all this? Because that's what I grew up in. And when I left that and I realized, hey, top five list of conflict resolution, fighting's not one of them. Uh, cool things to do, drinking and driving doesn't make the list anymore. That's not good at all. That's horrible. And there's consequences. Racism, that comes from ignorance. That needs to change. That's weird. Where did that come from? Gossip, that's not a good way to get along with people. Like I started to see, I need to retrain my brain. I need to retrain my brain. Maybe you've been there. Well, here's three things that you and I need to retrain our minds of. Here's three lies. More than likely, since you were little, if you grew up in America, you were told these three things, among many others. You can do everything, you can be anything, and you are unique and special. Now, I want to I keep on track. I'm telling you these things because this is what we just read in verse 16. Solomon is saying, I can do everything I want. I'm smarter than all those before me. I'm unique. I'm special. And in America, we're told these things, aren't we? Like, like look at the first one. You can do everything. You can do anything you want. Aren't you told from a, a little kid that you got no limitations, I love K-State football. I love Bill Snyder. He's got these 16 goals, and people have posters of them, and it's awesome. People are like, oh, it's cool. One of them, no self-limitations. Like, even, even a solid old guy like him says, ow, don't put any limitations on yourself. But is it really true that you can really do everything? Like right now, if you wanted to be president of the United States, would you have a realistic shot at getting that? Like right now, if you really wanted to go to the NFL and play, you got a realistic shot of that happening? Probably not. Now, you can strive for everything. That's America, right? We're thankful to be in a country where you got freedom to do that. But when someone tells you you can do everything, then you start to believe when you grow up that you do anything less than everything, you somehow failed. And so the product of that kind of mindset is that people grow up juggling, 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 juggling. I got dreams, I got life, I got hopes, I got things, all kinds of things. Family, and, and we do everything, but we find joy in nothing until we crash. Why? We can't do everything because we're humans. We're not God. We got limitations. And here's, here's some gospel truth for you. God would say, you can't do everything that the world says, but you can do everything that I say. Because whatever I tell you to do, my Holy Spirit will empower you to do. Sometimes it's not so freeing to know the world is your oyster. Sometimes it's bondage to know that there's so many possibilities and you start to live in a box of fear thinking, I don't know which direction to step because I'm scared of failure. And God's saying, you ain't got to freak out. You ain't got to worry about it. Align yourself with me. Be filled with my Holy Spirit. Walk in my ways. And you can do everything I tell you to do on earth. You're going to rest in the grace of Jesus as you do it. That's good news. Second one, he says, we see in our culture, you can be anything. You can be anything. Anything you want to be, you can do it. Now, can you be LeBron James? No. Because you're not six foot nine, two forty five. Now you can probably get to two forty five, like right, but you, you, you ain't getting to six foot nine. 
You can't just be super talented. You can't be better than everyone else. You can't be whatever you want. Again, you can strive for it, but you can't just be whatever you want. You say, well, what's the downside to that? Well, you got adults who grow up and they think they can be whatever they want so they're never okay with who they actually are. And then they live in social media land where everyone gets on Instagram, Facebook, every other outlet, and they put the best version of themselves on there. And you see the best version of everyone else and you're not okay with any version of yourself. You say, oh, I don't have a perfect family like them. Oh gosh, that's what they're doing today. I'm stuck at work. Oh gosh, look what they had for supper. I can't eat that. Oh wow, they're at the gym. I'll never make it to the gym as routinely as they do. You see the best versions of everyone and they're not realistic versions of anyone. And the last one, of course, here, here, here's what the gospel truth to that would be. The second one, you can be anyone. Now you can't be anyone but you can be exactly who God created you to be and who he says that you are. The creator gets to tell creation who they are. And the gospel says you're a child of God. The gospel says that that you are um, a citizen of heaven, that you are loved, that you have purpose, that you're a new creation. You also hear our culture tell us from a young age that you are unique and special. Now, are you to whatever degree unique and special? Yeah, but, but, There's a downside to it. Because look at Solomon, verse 16. It says, I'm more wise than anyone else. All the kings before me. And so we grow up in this culture where that coach says, ooh, man, that that arm, you can throw that football, that's going to take you places. That leg, you can kick that soccer ball, that's going to take you places. Someone says, wow, that smile, that's going to open doors. Wow, that talent, that's going to get you far. So the downside is, When you think that you're unique and special in our culture, it's people's way of trying to place value on you, but it's usually based on potential and effort, not your value as a human. And so it's always tagged on to a, well, you're unique and special if you just continue to use the good things that are in you, if you just hone this talent, if you just make it to D1 and then you make it to the pros, if you just do this, if you just do that. And so we say, yeah, I'm unique and special, I get it. Until you grow up and you realize, man, I have past regrets. I fear failure. And I don't know how to live in the moment. Because I was always told that I'm unique and special and yet my life looks just like everyone else's. As if that's a bad thing in many cases, right? And God says, I don't need to tell you that you're a snowflake or a a pretty little butterfly to tell you simply this. You are valued and you are loved and the cross proves that. And you don't need to spend the rest of your life earning value from a world that can't give it. But you can rest in me. Here's the conclusion to that. The earth is broke. The people in the earth, on the earth are broke. So we need someone not of this earth to come down and fix us. And that's why Jesus is the hope. You guys having fun yet?
Yeah, someone's depressed. This is not, Ecclesiastes is not a cure for depression. It is not. But it is honest. It's that friend who tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And so you, you can't just avoid them forever, but you don't want to hang out with them every day. That's Ecclesiastes. Verse 17, just two verses left. Verse 17, so I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. Third thing we see about the chase is it's exhausting. It's exhausting. How many of you right now, you're just worn out? You're just worn out. Juggling life is exhausting. It says in this translation that I set out to learn. Some translations say that I worked to learn. Like there's effort in this. He, he tried everything. He tried everything. One, um, one preacher said it's like stuffing the pita of life. Right? I, I don't know about you, but I like pitas um, because they are diverse. Like you could either versatile, you can, you can like warm them and put honey on them or you can stuff them full of meat and they're just, they're just delicious little pitas, right? I um, if if a purse and a loaf of bread had a baby, it would be a pita, right? Like you can hold things with it, but you can eat it like bread, and it's it's delicious. And Solomon is the pita, and all of the things that life has to offer are the things he's stuffing in it, and he's trying to see how how much can I tell? Is this wisdom or is this madness or is this folly? I, I want to test them. I want to I want to stuff them in. I'm going to go and, and I'm not going to knock anything until I try it. I'm going to experience these things and I'm going to hope that I can find meaning and satisfaction on earth. So he's stuffing the pita of life. Is your pita fulfilled? Let's play on words. How do you like that? That's good took me at least 30 seconds to come up with that. Is your Peter fulfilled? Let's talk about it. What have you stuffed? If you look at the chase in your life, whether it be recent or over the last X amount of years, what have you stuffed into the PETA trying to figure out, is this going to bring me ultimate joy? Money. That's one that we all have tried, right? So if you are one who, who gets money and you actually have money, you find out something's still missing, isn't it? And if you say, well, I'm going to not have money, I'm going to be poor, and I'm just not even going to get in that rat race of trying to make more, make more, make more, get this promotion, this promotion, maybe even want to live off the grid, you still find it ain't enough, right? You say, well, I got money, let's change what we do with money. So then you say, huh, what else can bring me satisfaction? How about I'll spend it on shopping, right? That's fun for a little bit. But then you find you got credit card debt, that ain't good, so that that ain't fill in the pita very well. You're not satisfied. And you say, well, maybe I won't do that anymore. Maybe I'll save it. Well, how much is enough, right? Well, this person says six months here, and this says three, and this says you need to have this amount of your bills covered. It's never enough, right? How much can you save? Then you say, you know what? That's not what it's about. I'm going to give away my money. And so you're generous, and it's good. And at first, you're like, oh, this is awesome, until people aren't thankful for it. Or they start taking advantage of you. And then you're saying, well, this ain't where it's at either. And so money doesn't do it. Well, then you say, well, I got to stuff something else in my pita. Maybe my career. 
well, I'm going to go to college so I can get a really good job. You go to college, maybe you get that degree, and you find out, hey, you don't always get really good jobs, right? Or you say, you know what? I did get that really good job. I, I, I love it, and, and I've always wanted this job. I'm in the field that I want to. I feel like it matches my personality and my desires, but you still come home at night thinking, it's not everything I dreamed. And yet for four, six, eight years of college, it was your hope getting you through each day. I'm going to get that job I love. I'm going to get that job I love. And you got the job you love, and it's not all that it was cracked up to be. So then you move on. You say, well, how about a family? Okay, well, I'm going to stuff this. I'm going to build a family. So I got to get married. So you have a spouse, and hopefully that's good. Hopefully that's good. But it's not always perfect, is it? And then you say, well, maybe our marriage is struggling a little bit. It's not fully satisfying me. We should have kids. That's always the answer, right? That's not the answer. Please do not walk away. And you have kids? How many of your kids are perfect? It's a trick question, right? Because there's still something missing. There's still, you say, well, what about relationships? So you get in relationships, they're not always great. So you say, I'm going to leave relationships. It's not always great. You see, I got, I got a whole bunch of stuff that I've tried in every way possible with each one of them to fill my PETA. Some of us are in the middle right now of trying to stuff some of these things in the PETA, thinking maybe this adjustment, this change, will bring the satisfaction I desire. And it's not. And Solomon's saying, I told you 3,000 years ago, I tried it all and none of it worked. Please don't keep running the rat race. You're not going to find it. Here's the hope. He's only talking about what's on earth. That's a hope. That is beautiful. He's only talking about what is on earth. Jesus says, stop filling your pita. Because it's not, you're not going to find fulfillment by filling. You find fulfillment by emptying, by giving your life to Christ. Jesus says, you abide in me. You live in me. You remain in me. That's where we find life. He says, come and rest. How many of us experience true rest in stuffing the pita of life? No, it's work. It's temporary pleasure, and then it's work. It's temporary joy, then it's work. It's temporary happiness, but it's always work. And Jesus says, come all who are weary, who are heavy laden. When was the last time you actually experienced that promise of finding rest in Jesus? If you call yourself a Christian, and yet that seems further from the truth in terms of you experiencing true rest, something's broken. Something's wrong. But the beauty is that promise and invitation still stands. You're not immune to it. You can enjoy it today. He says, stop trying to work and fill the pita. Trust in my work on the cross. I gave you everything you need and ever will need when I died for you 2,000 years ago. So oftentimes we think about Romans 6, baptism. We're going to have baptisms in a week. We think, okay, it says that we... We're buried with Christ in his death. We're raised to walk in the newness of life. We think walking in the newness of life is simply turning from sin. 
turning from bad behaviors. Walking in newness of life is also claiming the promises of God and enjoying the fullness of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Amen? That's good news. And I'm not telling you, we've got one last thing we're going to cover. I'm not telling you the things that, that we have, the things that we've talked about tonight, family and, and jobs, and they're not inherently bad. Please understand that. They're only bad is if, if you see them as a means to the end or the end goal themselves. There's a huge difference between enjoying something and finding your joy in something. So God, in many cases, wants you to have a family, wants you to have a job, hopefully one that you really enjoy. He wants you to have these things, but he doesn't want you to be controlled by those things. Because when you don't start with Jesus, but you start with finding satisfaction in those things, that's not only unfair to them, that's abuse. Does that make sense? Like when you're in a relationship with someone or something, and you're trying to use it ultimately for your satisfaction, for your joy, because you're not getting it elsewhere, that's abuse. But when you begin with Jesus, you can start to see everything as it truly is and just enjoy in a healthy way the things he's put around us on earth. So I want to make sure as we walk through this any further, I'm not condemning these things in and of themselves. I'm condemning them when we taint them by trying to get our joy in them. Last but not least, verse 18. Gosh, this better get hopeful soon. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. That's powerful. The last thing we see is we've got to shift the chase. We've got to shift the chase. He says, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. So the more wisdom he has, the more sorrow he experiences, the more grief he has. That's odd, right? The, the more knowledge I have, the more Sorrow I have. You say, that's odd. Well, you ever watch the news for more than like two or three minutes? And you see murder. You see criminals. You see overseas conflict. You see tragedy. A child dies. Something happens. After two or three minutes, what do you do? What's your response? If you can, usually you turn it off, don't you? Why? Because when your knowledge increases, your sorrow increases. When your knowledge increases, your sorrow increases. So on one hand, that is incredibly depressing when we're talking about things on earth. On the other hand, though, if we're not talking about things on earth, this is where our hope is. This is where our hope is. So if you're going to invest and focus on a broken world with broken people trying to fix it apart from a perfect holy God, then yeah, the more you know and the more wisdom you have, the sadder things are going to be. But if you shift your focus, if you shift your investment into a kingdom that's not of this world, into a God that's not of this world, into a life that's not of this world, all of a sudden, knowledge isn't so bad, is it? Knowledge doesn't increase your sorrow. Knowledge leads to life. 
Now it's beautiful. You see, even though you're on a broken earth, and maybe some of your situations tonight, you come in here and they're broken. You got broken relationships, you got broken hearts and emotions and past hurts and all kinds of things. You, you got to make sure and understand, just because you're in a broken place doesn't mean you have to have a broken position. There is a huge difference between your place and your position. And it changes everything when you know and choose to have a different position regardless of your place. Here's what I'm saying. Um, a couple nights ago, we were playing outside. We've got a backyard and we've got a, a small fence um, blocking the views from the streets, from the street to the backyard. And Silas, he's playing and he's, you know, like three and a half years old. He's mostly potty trained, but he's a little boy and he's out there playing in the dirt. He's doing his thing. He's having fun. The last thing, though, he's going to do when he has to go use the restroom is to run inside, take the chance of us saying, you know what, we're inside. Let's just stay in here. And then he doesn't get to go back out and play. So what does he do? We lost track of him for a split second. Like, Where's Silas? Tara goes around, sees him in the fence, in between the house and the fence in the corner. He's got his pants pulled down, and he's taking care of business. In his mind, he found the right place to do this because no one could see him. Here's the problem. He was faced away from the house and the fence, just doing his business for the world on this side of the fence to see everything. And we laughed because, number one, we don't condone that kind of behavior, right? But he's a little boy. He does, he does what he does. We laughed because in his mind, he found the right place, but he wasn't in the right position. And you've got to understand in life, right? You can be in, in the, the right place. You can have the blessings of life flowing. Everything can be just wonderful. And you can still be in the wrong position. You're not focused on the Lord. You're not, you're not focused on the things of God. You're, you're consumed with the things of the world. And so even the biggest, most awesome blessings of life still feel like misery when you're in the right place but the wrong position. Or you can find yourself oftentimes in the wrong place. You're in a bad situation. It seems hopeless. It seems destitute. And, and, and when you change your position, your focus is on God and the things of God, all of a sudden you can have incredible joy and comfort and peace in the midst of the greatest trials on earth. This is why we love guys like Daniel who go into the lion's den, who go into exile in Babylon. They're not in the right place. It's a broken place they're in, and yet their position stays focused on God. Their eyes, their gaze, their fo- it's all on God. You say, man, I love Daniel, because whether it was the lion's den or the fiery furnace or not bowing a knee to the king, he was in a broken place, but he had a proper position, and it changed everything for him. What's your position? That's a greater question than what, what place are you in right now? Because if we went one by one through here, we'd find out there's a lot, of broken position, a lot of broken places we're in, aren't they? A lot of broken circumstances. But every second of every day, God's saying, my Holy Spirit, my word, they're prompting you. At any second, you can change your position. Say, I might be walking in a broken place, but my eyes are on a perfect God. I might be in an unholy situation that I can't change, but I'm focused on a holy God who can change everything. You've got to shift the chase. You've got to shift the chase.
old-timey preachers, and I'll wrap it up with this, this last analogy here. Old-timey preachers use uh, an analogy when, when talking about this of, of a loom. Yarn, I don't know much about a knitting loom, but maybe you do. They, in general, they could sit on your lap or they can be huge and they could be these machines that have all kinds of yarn going and you can create all kinds of um, sweaters and all kinds of things from this and, and there's spools on them and it's an interesting little contraption if you've ever seen one. And, and they say that your understanding of what's being created is completely opposite depending on whether you're looking up from below or looking down from above. And say, if you get underneath a loom and you look up at the yarn, it's going to look like a mess. And it's going to look like chaos. And you're not going to see a pattern and you're not going to see beauty in it. It's going to be knots and it's going to be all kinds of goofiness. And Solomon's saying, guys, I tested it out. And that's what life under the sun is like. It's not going to make sense at all. And you're going to have a hard time seeing any beauty at all. And you're going to be kind of depressed. But if you stand above the loom and you look down and you start to see it from this perspective, from a perspective that God has, right? When he looks down on this earth and he says, oh, I, I, I gave pattern and design and beauty and things that, that you wouldn't otherwise see if you don't have my perspective. It changes everything, doesn't it? And the only way that you're going to get a, above the, the knitting loom perspective is if someone helps you to see that perspective. For us, when we see, hey, we need, we need someone not under the sun to come under the sun and to show us. And that's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. You want to know the most hopeful thing about Ecclesiastes? is It's Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. When Jesus himself says, someone, someone greater than Solomon is here. And he was talking about himself. Solomon's telling us all this stuff about his wisdom of the things under the sun. And Jesus tells us in his ministry, I came here. I'm not from under the sun. I'm from above the sun. But I came down here to give you a perspective of life and to give you life. And when you have life in Christ, you start to see all of the brokenness around you. You see the news and the tragedy and the chaos. And you say, you know what? I can't make sense of all of it, but I got a heavenly perspective in an earthly place. And I see that there can be redemption and there can be beauty, but it only comes when we have Jesus in the mix and it will never come if we push him away. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what situation you're in, but you need to know we're all part of a chase. Don't chase philosophy, chase a person. Don't chase meaning, chase Jesus. It changes everything. When you leave here tonight, I challenge you, just one challenge. Psalm 23. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me. Some of the, the greatest blessing for some of you tonight is to simply take a break from the juggling act. To say, am I juggling the things I should be? Am I chasing Jesus or am I chasing things of this world. Let the Holy Spirit sift you tonight, tomorrow, whenever you sit down and ponder that chapter, ponder your life. He'll do a work in you. Let's pray.